Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to an extraordinary man. It's going to be an extraordinary conversation, I can promise you as well. Uh, the man's name is Paul Williams. Uh, he is a film director and he's just written a memoir called Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen and Holy Men. Paul Williams was a uh, a figure of enormous importance in the uh, 1960s, 70s counterculture. Coming out of Harvard, he kind of knew everybody. And uh, uh, you'll hear about his career as we go. But I feel I need to add a little bit of background because his is a history which has somewhat been erased um, recently, uh, uh, a week or so prior to this conversation. Uh, the noted famed uh, producer Ed Pressman died. Um, Pressman uh, started his career with Paul Williams as a collaborator. Uh, the very the nature of that collaboration uh, is discussed during this conversation. Uh, but together they formed a company uh, called Pressman Williams, uh, which was instrumental in shepherding into production and to life uh, a, a number of uh, very important films, including Terence Malick's Bad Badlands. Um, 
when Pressman died, uh, the, there was nary a mention of uh, Paul in the obituaries, but I think that it's important to recognise that um, those early De Palma films, those early Manic films, were produced by uh, uh, Paul Williams and Ed Pressman, not just one of the two. Um, there is... <laughs> he's had such a career... Uh, partly I think to do with a, a political awakening partly to do with a spiritual awakening he has um, to some extent marginalised his own film work until now with this uh, memoir which hopefully will do something towards putting him into his rightful position. His movies are, um, feature some of the best actors of the period including uh, Robert Duvall, Seymour Cassell, John Voight, who has a very early important role. Um, he made a film, uh, his first film was called Out of It, it was made in 1969, starring Barry Gordon and John Voight. Then The Revolutionary, again, John Voight and Robert Duvall came in the 1970s, in, uh, in 1970. Uh, then he made Dealing, uh, he made a whole, bunch of, a whole bunch of movies, Miss Wright, The November Men, uh, and some of the, his failed movies are more interesting than some some people's made movies, including And the Walls Came Tumbling Down, uh, which was about a, um, uh, a biopic of John Paul II. Anyway, all of this is kind of covered, but I just wanted to preface this uh, conversation much more than I usually do with these conversations, as you probably have just noticed, um, uh, because I, I think... Uh, it, it, it's vital to, to sort of understand just how amazing it is to talk to Paul and to have access to his memories and to his ideas um, when he is really a key figure who deserves to be much better known in this period. So uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you do, remember to like and subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter at DrJohnTDR. J-O-N-T-Y. Thanks go to Elliot Atkins for the music and to Ali Howard for the art. And um, enjoy the conversation. Playing a little cat and mouse game here with you for a little bit because you're a bright guy. And... Mm. So I'm told. Uh, and so I did some things on a literary level mm. in that book that normally you don't see. Right. And I was wondering if if you cognited on the uh, system I was using to make it so immediate. Well, there was definitely there was definitely a sort of almost like a uh, it was almost like poetry at some points that it would have this uh -huh. sort of nucleus you know it was sort of everything extraneous was gone and there was some very right, right. i got you yeah. that was the first thing was to get rid of everything to try to keep it action and dialogue only and to let the audience take the emotional significance right and under, i was not trying to tell anybody what to think about this except maybe a little political you know, stuff that drove me to South America. But the other thing, you know, this whole mosaic of vignettes, I thought was sort of an interesting, I had never quite seen that before. 
and, and the whole idea as well of you sort of having the years uh, going yeah. by, and it was almost like it. I tell you something; it reminded me of a little bit was um, almost like the voiceover of a noir film. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you know that's interesting. That's interesting because you know somebody mentioned it to me the other day. He did see what that was all about. Is that I most memoirs are written from the point of view of the old wise man telling you about, oh, how wonderful. and blah, blah, blah. He, The thing he liked so much about this was that everything was told from a contemporary point of view, mm. from the point of view of the character at that moment, who hadn't yet become. <laughs> he still had a life. You sort of took the trip with his evolving point of view on his own experience. Absolutely. It's sort of against the David Copperfield sort of Charles Dickens model of, you know, whether I'm the hero of these pages, right. we are to see. Right, right, right. The exact opposite. And yeah. the other thing I thought was interesting, I, a lot of this, I think, worked. I mean, people like the book, mm. but I think a lot of the reasons it works aren't clear. But I think one of them is simply that it's really an anti-ego book. Mm. Most memoirs are there to show you how wonderful, great, my personality I've become. Whereas this is <laughs> how I became a fool, you know. It's sort of antithetical to the uh, to the whole idea of uh, autobiography, then. Right, right, right. Well, in the West, I would imagine it would be a pretty good autobiography in some mystical uh, clan somewhere. How long did it take you to write? How you know? Because it, it it's, uh, it, it's about six years. Well, what happened is I started just be the book originally started from two germinal ideas one my french my best friend shirley Hawkin, who is a music producer brilliant guy and i've known him for 40 years and uh he said you know you really got to deal with this goldberg thing you know which is something i never really had dealt with publicly so goldberg was and, your birth name yeah and i changed it just before i went to harvard or my father changed it and so, really, it was coming to terms with that identity problem. That was one thing. Yeah. In a certain sense, that's how it... And the other, the other side of it was that throughout my life, I've had what you, some people, you know, most Westerners would call, you know, have had mystical experiences. But between you and me, you know, I've had extraordinary... They're extraordinary. You, you, there's no way I can tell my Harvard roommates about this, right? Mm. You know, they'll think you're, you know, but hey, it has been one of the central facts of my life that I see things on other, in other, in mystical realm, what people call mystical realms, but they're not. They're things like distant seeing or uh, uh, essential forms or all kinds of things, which are, you know, Plato writes about it. Uh, it uh, but until I met, met Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, who was the current Dalai Lama's principal teacher. Mm. Um, and he showed me what this stuff was. This was not my, you know, it's it's accessible to any human being if you want to put the time in uh, to learn such things. But mm. if we don't have the time, who has the time, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's been a big part of my life. And I so I made it just started out just making a list. Mm. Of all the most extraordinary things that I had seen, extraordinary. And I was going to just tell the story of those two themes, how the extraordinary evolved and merged into a, 
uh, a, a life point of view, and how I dealt with my identity problem. And those things are not totally unrelated. You, one represents the ego, and the other represents the essence. You know, so it's that's going on in the book. I don't think anybody conceptualizes it that way, or understand. Very few people understand it that way. They'll either take it from one point of view or another point of view. But I think the overall effect is one that they're not completely aware of. That is moving themselves towards their own more essential self. I mean, I, I guess that's the core. I mean, in in that sense, it's not antithetical to the whole idea about autobiography because you are asking those essential questions of of who am I, where do I come from, where am I going, and that I that idea of um, you know you have those extraordinary uh, moments of of sort of visions and as you say you sort of uh, perceiving things which are happening contemporaneously but are, are distant. They sort of sort of skip like pebbles across the surface of the book. You know, you have them in a whole, you know, series of 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 moments. They they also have a way of sort of stitching the book together. If you know what I mean, it sort of gives you this. Uh-huh. Sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. So let let's go back. So we'll go go back right to the beginning where your 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 family background. A lot of people who are listening to this obviously won't yet have read the book, but will. Uh, so we don't want to spoil too much for them. But if you could just give us a, a general idea of your background and life before. Uh, I mean, your first chapter is sort of where I came from, so it's it, it has that element to it. Let me say this. Well, imagine John Stuart Mill Senior living in the Bronx. Now I don't know who, where your, uh, where is your audience? Is it in Europe here? Oh, it's all, it's international. It's all over the place. Okay, so people know what the Bronx is. I imagine so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, all right, cool. So that's basically if I had to explain my where I come from. I come from the, you know, lower, lower middle class uh, streets in the Bronx uh, with a father who is not very different from John Stuart Mill Sr. Mm. Um, so that's basically, uh, <laughs> and a mother, of course, who was, uh, what would you say, excessive mm. in her love. Mm. Huey Newton used to say the same thing about his mother. Really? And uh, Oh, yeah, there's a part in the book about that, I think, yeah, unless yeah. they took it out. Yeah, no, no, I think there is. You're right. You and I used to talk a lot about our mothers uh-huh. and what excessive love meant emotionally growing up. And uh, the thing we agreed on that it was sick to right. receive that much love from your mother is unbalanced. It's emotionally not healthy. But what it does do is it gives you an experience of overwhelming love as an infant, and then you spend your rest of your life never accepting in love because it's not equal to that excessive amount you got as a very young child. And so you keep moving forward, trying to find that love, mm. in a, you know, whether it's from economics or politics or revolution or women, right? That there's always this quest. You're always willing to give up what you've achieved because you know what it felt like, mm. you know? Mm. Anyway, but it's all unconscious. But So I'd say those were the two things that were going on where I came from. 
So then you have that that moment when um, you know your father sort of decides that you would be better if you go to a Harvard. You'd be better going under a sort of anglicized uh, name as Williams rather than as Goldberg. Um, and and as you as you said, well, up- in fairness to my father, he said I could pick any name. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, and I said uh, my middle name was William, so let's make that my last name. Right. But, right. Uh, you know, I didn't know that. And I left the original Williams. So it was Paul William Williams. Right. And uh, at the time, I didn't realize how it's just, uh, I mean, it would sound a name that you would expect Bugs Bunny to have. But Paul William Williams. That's <laughs> all. You know, or, or somebody. It was, you know, was it William Carlos Williams, would have, who writes in the vernacular, would have been a much better. And so, the, yeah, it was just a, a, you know, a, a confused and and upset teenager who was suddenly was told he was going to have a new name. Mm. I mean, I hadn't even been laid under that name. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was a virgin. I mean, that's it's so interesting as well because like it's it's how going to university is 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 the period where you you usually do have an opportunity to go and reinvent yourself. I mean, you're you're going with a different self altogether before you've even had the chance to reinvent yourself. What, what right? Are you, well, what are you what are you going to kick against if they? Uh... Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point. But it's interesting because I came to have Eric H. Erickson as my tutor to a new year. Do you know of this fellow? No, no, who's, Eric who's Erickson. This? Oh my goodness, he wrote a book called Childhood Society. He wrote a book called Young Man Luther. And he won the National Book Award for Gandhi's Truth. He's probably the preeminent psychoanalyst of the second half of the 20th century. Hmm. He invented the whole idea of life cycle, studying the whole life cycle, psychoanalysis and history, doing Luther, Hmm. young man Luther, about his having an identity crisis. That's what created Protestantism. And then, so he became my tutor, the man who invented invented the idea of an identity crisis. That's his concept. In the eight stages of man, identity versus, what is it, role, uh, anyway. Um, anyway, where are we going? Oh, yeah, so Erickson became my tutor, who, mm. when I went to Harvard, was perhaps the most famous guy at Harvard. I mean, you should Google him. He's, a, he's not a minor character in this area. Uh, anyway, the point is that I found out, I wrote some papers for him, which he really liked, and I went to his, see him in private. I found out, he didn't tell me, that the H, Eric H. Erickson, was Eric Hamburger Erickson. And wow. that just before he came to teach at Harvard Medical School, he dropped the Hamburger and became Eric H. Erickson. And he never told me that, even though I was writing all these papers about identity and who am I? I mean, the Jews don't like me, the Christians don't like me. I'm an outsider to the outside. You know, I took the whole idea of marginality. Mm. You know, how far out on the margin can you go? One thing then I later found out after he died was that his mother, who was Jewish, had an extramarital affair with a German and then married Hamburger. Because, mm. no, she said he took, uh, I mean, then married Erickson. He had, in other words, his mother had been married to a man named Hamburger. Then she had an affair 
And then she went to Dr. Erickson. And Eric Erickson always said, well, he took the name Erickson because that was the man who brought him up and he identified with that. So, but what he didn't ever reveal to me is he was pro he was a progeny of some German, possibly Nazi. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it was a and you know, and this is the guy who invented the identity crisis. Just to be yes, absolutely could, clear. <laughs> yes, well, yes, absolutely. You read up on this guy and won the National Book Award for Gandhi's Truth. Wow. Anyway, he's a he's a revered character in psychoanalysis. He worked with Anna Freud and. At, in London, by the way, when he first started out, he was an artist. Anyway, so Erickson ended up being my tutor, and uh, I wrote a lot about marginality for him, too. When does this start? When do you start sort of getting into uh, film as a, as a thing? Are you, are you, are you, when you're at Harvard, are you watching a lot of movies? Are you interested in the art form? Or are you just sort of interested in lots of cultural things here? <laughs> None of the above. I was a... a lower middle class kid, and I took pictures, photographs. I was definitely a, a bit of a prodigy from a very young age. I took really good photographs. I sometimes think it's like, you know, some kind of visual equivalent of Stevie Wonder. Mm. You know, I'm tone deaf. I'm very bad with music, but I can see incredibly. And so I always took really good photographs. And then when I got to Harvard, uh, I started out on the Harvard Crimson as a photographer. Uh, I was chosen to be my freshman at the end of my freshman year. And so I was taking a lot of pictures and they were being published all over the place. And junior year, Harvard gave the first course in photography. And of course, zillions of people came. They only took 20. And I was one that they took. And then the next year, they hired me to help teach the course. I was still an undergraduate, which is unheard of, frankly. So I knew, like I talk about it in the in the book. Uh, I I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to study the great painters, and I was really interested in how they saw things. How people see is very interesting to me. Anyway, so I didn't have any money, so I looked around for an anthropologist uh, that maybe would hire me to take pictures for their study, and I found one. Uh, Lawrence Wiley, the C. Douglas Dillon Professor of French Civilization at Harvard. And he loved my pictures, and he said, yes, he definitely sent me to Europe and shoot pictures for his book. And C. Douglas Dillon was Secretary of the Treasury of the United States of America. Wow. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so uh, Wiley got Dillon to give me some extra money to shoot some movie footage, too, mm. in the village of Chanzeau. And uh, so, in some sense, I that was the first. Well, that wasn't. I, yeah. Well, in a way, that was the first movie. Movie mm. was given to me because I want. I couldn't afford to go to Europe. The only way I could go is if I made movies and took pictures. And I wanted to see the great artists. And uh, but earlier, I had uh, decided I was a really good photographer. And I walked off the street, I still remember this, in Manhattan, to Time Life, and went to the, I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. And I said, look, I'm a better photographer than you, the guys you have working for you. They so said this to the guard. He must have thought I was out of my mind. And he said, well, why don't you go upstairs to see, and he gave me the name of Ann Guerin, who worked at Life magazine. 
And I went up to see her, and she's a very sweet woman in her 40s, you know. And I said, look, I can take better pictures than you're putting in Life Magazine. I should be, you should be giving me jobs. And I showed her all my pictures. And she said, look, these are very good pictures, but if you really want to do this, you have to tell a, a story in pictures, not just a bunch of good photographs. And she says, go do a story on something and then come back. And so that uh, my freshman year, I was six foot three. I weighed 165 pounds. And I they picked the Harvard crew coach, very, you know, old line New England people mm. asked me to row for, for Harvard. So there were seven of these prep and over Exeter, Theodore Roosevelt, the fourth, uh, you know, it was just, you know, the kings and princes of New England. Right. Right. And me from the from the Bronx, yeah. And so I I rode my freshman year with, the, and that was my probably the biggest part of my education. The freshman year, even though I was reading a lot, I could I had never been I'd never seen up close the establishment and how they lived, what their values were, and how they talked. Which started my radicalization process, I must say. Nevertheless, at Time Magazine, at the Life Magazine. I decided to do a film story on the Harvard crew. And I did. I spent three months shooting them on the river and everything. And when I was done, I brought it back to life. And she saw them, Dan Guerin, and she said, well, go upstairs to Sports Illustrated. So I went upstairs, and there's a guy named George Bloodgood there. I still remember. Very nice guy. And he said, these are great. We're going to run this a big story this summer in Sports Illustrated all about the Harvard crew going to the Olympics because the Harvard heavyweights are supposed to be in the Olympics. And so that was great. So then I go to France, you know, to shoot the summer in the summer to shoot the still photographs for the village of Sanzo and expose the movie footage along with a guy named Tommy Eager. He worked, he also shot some of the movie with me. Nice mm -hmm. guy. Just before I went to Sanzo, I was uh, sitting on this, on some park bench in Paris. Actually, it was near the Seine. It was along the Seine. And I read in the Herald Tribune, you know, Schwerner and Shaney are shot to death, blah, blah, blah. Upsetting. But even more upsetting was the headline which said, Harvard crew upset by Vesper Boat Club. It, the Harvard crew got upset and Vesper from Philadelphia beat them and they weren't going to go to the Olympics. There goes your story. There goes my story. Fuck. Very toss. Anyway, I finished shooting the... I shoot for three weeks in Shonzo, and then I get a URL pass. I Well, I got one before I went. I spent eight weeks going to all the great museums of Europe, which was my real purpose in going there and studying uh, light and composition and, and just curious how they saw things. Anyway, when I got back, uh, this is all in the book. When I got back, uh, I went to life, and they said, well, they'll run a couple of pictures, but you know, there's no story, obviously. Right. But they gave me about 1,100 incredibly beautifully printed 11 by 14 prints of all my pictures. Right. They gave it to me free. That was worth like you know, fifty thousand dollars, twenty. A lot of money to get that kind of stuff. I had no money. There's a theme here all through this thing: no money. How do you make all this happen with no money? Um, so that's Paul, John, and Faith Hubley, who were Academy Award-winning animators gave a course in animation 
and everybody wanted to be in the course so you couldn't get in but i went in and i said look you can need somebody to take the pictures of everybody's artwork each day mm. you know to see on the oxbury animation stand which costs you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour back then right to use anyway i said i volunteered to do that job which nobody else at Harvard would do. Who would waste a quarter, you know, to, to just shoot other people's stuff? They, they took me in a second. By the way, John Hubley invented Mr. Magoo. I don't know if you know who Mr. Magoo is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The short-sighted cartoon character, yeah. All right, so anyway, he knows the Magoo when he sees it. Anyway, <laughs> I, got, I, I, got the, I got the job. But really, during the day, I would, was editing together the French uh, movie, and then at night, I would go hide in the men's room while they locked up the building. And then once the building was locked and I was all alone, I'd run back into the animation room and use my 11 by 14s of the crew to make a movie out of the stills. And so senior year, I was doing the documentary. I was doing the movie of the stills. And then the... This is a long story, but that's when I was starting to think, hey, I think maybe I could make a movie. Right. It's not like I knew anything about movies or culture or film. I just think I technically am very good at manipulating people. I also right. know how to move a camera and expose film. I think I remember seeing at the Brattle, uh, I think it was an Olmi film, some Italian movie. Mm. And I watched it. I didn't know what they were saying. You know, it was an Italian but I watched what was happening very closely. And I said, I could do that. Right. I could make, I would got to create that. So I really went into film as simply, I discovered there was something I knew how to do. And with your first film, I mean, it's really interesting reading that and, and knowing about the, the photography background, because your first film, of course, you, you have uh, the character at the very beginning, sort of photographing uh, women on a beach and um it's coming <laughs> it sort of uh feels like it starts from that very autobiographical right. uh uh beginning but it, it's frankly i think it was a little bit i was smart enough to know that i didn't know anything so i did do something incredibly personal where i did mm. know i mean i was acutely aware that i was not a, a writer right at that point and i said well but i'm gonna have to write because i can't afford to hire a writer so I better write about stuff I know about that's happened to me. Mm. And I just wrote down, I spent a year writing down things on five by eight index cards, scenes, mm. and then spent an immense amount of time just putting them on the floor and rearranging them in different orders to see if I could make a movie out of it, which I did eventually. There's a little footnote to that. Many years later, not many years, well, how many years later? Yeah. About four or five years later, I was at Francis Coppola's house. And I went up to his writing room with him. And on the, this was before computers and that. Mm. And I had spent, you know, a year looking at the floor of all these index cards, right? Rearranging them. But on one wall of his room was made of metal. And he had these little magnets with clips on them. So you could clip a index card on it. And so he didn't have to look down at the floor and hurt his neck. Francis could sit back in his chair and keep rearranging them. Anyway, <laughs> that's a, a tiny little detail. It seems like a consistent strain in, in, throughout your story of, of sort of 
hitting things sideways almost by by, right. <laughs> by sort of thinking of thinking of things in the more you know mechanics of it how do i put this together how does a story work right. from, from bits you know from the still photographs to the moving picture from the right. index cards to the script but plus you know i i also john boyd when well, we were making you know, the revolutionary so the first film is out of it which you make and john voigt has a has a small but important role in that and and out of it i would describe i think you describe it in the book yourself as a sort of precursor to american graffiti as a sort of high school um sorry college movie about you know high school I, yeah exactly wanting wanting to have wanting to get have sex and and you know break break into the world of adulthood i guess well but it was also about the utter tyranny of the belief system of adolescent high schools and suburbia yeah and being uh, cool it was a, a little bit ahead of its graffiti and the graduate and all those things came later mm. it was like the, a report from the front about what life was like it wasn't but you know most movies if you ever see apocalypse now or all kinds of you know they're made 10 15 years after the events mm. they're not made in the midst of the things that are happening but all my films i made in the midst of it so it's really out of it was out of it was made when that was happening mm. not looking back on it from a nostalgic point of view uh the revolutionary i made in the middle of the revolution for christ's sakes you know and by it took two years to make so by the time it was done you know the, the people had moved past that um but in any event uh getting back to because to the psychology of uh, perception and seeing i remember one night when we were doing a night shoot on a revolutionary with john and it's a scene you just saw tommy lee jones who had a small part? That was how I made Lee Jones got his sad card. Anyway, John has uh, to be picked up by an army uh, uh, truck to warn the black revolutionaries that there the army is going to come in on them the next day. And we were trying to figure out this, what his emotions would be for that scene. And he had some ideas, and he said, "But have I done that yet already? Those colors." And I said, well, wait, wait a second. Give me two minutes. I'll run the movie. Mm. And I could just sit there and run the whole movie in my head, every take. That was pretty amazing to me. And I said, nope, you haven't done those. It's okay. <laughs> is, is that part of your, do you think that's part of your sort of extra, I'm not extra sensory perception, but that sort of, you know, um, insight the, and vision that you, that you have? One, of course, I don't really know. But two, mm. uh, I have... I'm, I'm, I'm willing to spin a theory on most anything, but I don't know. You know, I don't know for sure at all. But I, it is an ability to concentrate at an extreme level for long periods of time. And in that sense, that almost sounds like somebody who's autistic. But I'm socially kind of gifted. <laughs> so, but yet it does seem to have aspects of autism. <laughs> right. Right. So uh, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, But yeah, but of course, I've always been interested in what it is. So, I mean, I got my my I I graduated from Harvard with a summa and the psychology of perception. Of course, I flunked my oral exams. That's a great story in the book. 
when when you start making films, that's when you you begin a relationship as well with Ed Pressman, who uh, becomes sort of the well becomes a producing partner. Essentially, you you have a company together, and uh, as we're recording this, is we're about I think uh, a week after Ed uh, sadly died. What's your uh, so so yeah? How how do you how do you get together with him? And well, and- I don't know if you want me to tell the story as because I certainly tell the whole Ed Pressman story in the book. Sure, sure. And I can certainly recount to you some of those things if you'd like me to. But it's a, it's a, it, my history with Ed is extraordinary uh, and unknown. I mean, Ed, Ed is just, Ed, Ed just died. So I really don't want to say anything negative about him. But he sure had some sides which uh, did some violence to me. I mean, yeah. There's this aspect, and and fair enough. You don't want to you don't want to necessarily get into anything which is overly negative of a man who's who's just just gone. But I mean, from the from the get go, it's it's like you're you already sort of you you are a very much creative person who's who's making these films, and Ed is is more involved with the business side of it. Would that be would that be a fair assessment? No. Okay. That's certainly what he would like folks to know. I just wrote, well, it's in the book, and I just, I just sent it to my old college roommates who were all reading the obituaries. Uh, I should, well, it's in the book, you know, where I teach them how how to take movie. Yeah, I'm gonna read it to you. Should I read it to you? No, no, but by all means, uh, uh, you could just. I mean, I, just, I I'm just. I've read the book, obviously. But okay, um... well, you know, he, he his hallmark. As a producer, it was this little notebook he used to carry around with him, a black and white composition book. Right. Well, I taught him, you know, he didn't know how to... Well, there's, you can read it in the book. Uh, anyway, and I, when the Museum of Modern Art had a retrospective 25 years later, mm. the Pressman Films, finally, after 25 years, he said from the stage, you know, Paul Williams really taught me how to be a producer. Mm. and gave me the method and the confidence. Look, when I met Ed, he couldn't talk. Mm. I had to bring him to London Hospital to get his job. You know, I made all the all the all the social networking contacts for the company for the first five years. Right. And right. I showed him how to go about doing things. I was pretty savvy. Right. And I taught it. And then, you know, anyway, it's all in the book. Yeah, but you know the 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 idea that Ed did all the business. Oh, I was busy networking to Scorsese, I found the Palmer, Bert Schneider, Bob Rafelson, John Boyd, Bob Duval. But well, all these people that came into Pressman Williams. Even the name of the company was supposed to be Williams Pressman, but I was had all my Goldberg promise. I didn't want anybody to think about my name too much. I said let's call Pressman Williams. But right. anyway. Uh, look, I, 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 these things are facts. Okay, the facts are that you know I took them under my wing. And, and as you say, you're in the middle of this, this you know, explosion of talent, which which is coming out and and will will sort of become the new Hollywood. Um, you know, yeah, I, I love the the bit where you you're meeting Martin Scorsese and and this guy's talking about movies and nothing but movies and you and you're like, okay. <laughs> um and, and all these uh, uh, you know to 
Tommy Lee Jones gets his uh, SAG card as a result of appearing in the Revolutionary. John Voight gets his first you know, break with no, you. No, no, really. John Voight actually made a horror film called Frank's Great Adventure before Out of It. Oh, that's a right. A budget horror movie. Yeah, yeah. But your movie didn't come out until after Midnight Cowboy, right? Right. Yeah, no, I was, instead of being the genius who, you know, first found out about the 50s, uh, I still remember David Pickert, United Artists, said, look, you know, it's in black and white. You got no stars. John Voight was just casting him as a Midnight Cowboy. We'll wait till after Midnight Cowboy. At least then you'll have a star in your movie. But I would tell them, forget it. It'll be old hat by now. Everybody's picking up on this. We're two years ahead of everyone. And in three years, it's going to be... Oh, I was right. In fact, when I went to London to make The Revolutionary, uh, Richard Lester was working at the same studio as I was in Twickenham. So we used to have lunch sometime. And he would say, he was much older than I was, um, he would say, you know, films have... As I guys, he thought for about six months, there was a, right. a, the cultural moment changes every six months or so. And you can have a wonderful film and it can just come out in the wrong time. And you can have a horrible film, but it's a, the, the zeitgeist just right. And it does wonderfully. And frankly, you know, we missed our window of opportunity without it. When mm. it came out, it was old hat. I mean, yeah. when I went to Berlin Festival with it, George Stevens, you know, a great American director, you know, was going to give it to Golden Bear. Then two days before the awards, the German students rioted and closed down the festival. So <laughs> they're part. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There are parts of my life that have been very lucky and parts of my life that have been very unlucky. <laughs> it's also that thing of living in a revolutionary period, isn't it? Of sort of like you're, yeah. you're, you're into the the revolution, you're into the the sort of zeitgeist that's going on there. But at the same time, it's like it's it's not very conducive to having a sort of a career trajectory, which is. Well, listen, you keep in mind, I, I was in Algiers with Eldridge Cleaver. Right. John Cox. Uh, who else? Uh, his wife was there, uh, that woman who became quite famous, a uh, black philosopher at Berkeley, woman. Angela Davis. It was me, Angela Davis, Eldridge, his wife, Big Man East, and Don Cox, who was Eric Heppington. I mean, we. I was in Algiers, and when I discover, you know, I'm, I'm going to do a docu some documentary footage to raise money for Bobby Seale's trial in New Haven. And when I realized, when I go to my first meeting, 
he had a, a house outside of Algiers. I had to wait because he was meeting with the North Koreans first. And, you know, after an hour or so, they came, the short guys in black suits, they came out, we got in the limousine and drove away. And then I went up and then we had our meetings. But after a few days, it became very clear we were planning, I was in the middle, they were planning a kamikaze attack on New York City, wipe out the police, blow up the power stations. And uh, that was a little bit more than I had bargained for. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, there's a, there, yeah, there's a definite moment where um, it feels like you're trying to take a step backwards. <laughs> take, let's let's just take a moment here. One night we're going back from his house back to Algiers, and we're going through the town square there, which was featured in Pontecorvo's Battle of Algiers. My right. one of my favorite. And and Don Cox, who was the area captain for the Panthers in New Haven, said that's what it's going to be like in Manhattan. Nobody on the street but cops and panthers. Well, a, anyway, what happens is in the book. I won't spoil it. No, no, absolutely not. But I mean, throughout your career, you, there is this, you know, there is this banging together of, of the creative side and, and the political that sometimes they align and sometimes uh, not. they sort of go against each other. They're a bit, bit antagonistic. Well, I think it, it, if you look at it in terms of a life cycle, right? You know, certainly you see a you know a little Horatio Alger kind of character coming up here. You know, I'm gonna be a or what? what what's the better? I like Harry the Rat with women better. If you ever read that book, right? Uh, by right. Jules Pfeiffer. Uh, but anyway, you know, you you're trying to be successful, rich and famous and smart, right? But. Uh, I achieved most of that before I was 24. Certainly richer and more famous and than I ever conceived of being on playing in the streets of the Bronx right. a few years earlier. And then running into life and death situations, that does something to you. And then running into some, you know, I run into some of the highest, and I'm not just bullshitting here, but, you know, the current Dalai Lama's teacher and the, you know, the great Sufi authentic master and studied with these people a bit yeah so i do know about a lot of stuff that is just outside the realm of normal discourse in the west and so on some sense you see a disengaging from the values of the west and not necessarily becoming east but simply acknowledging the objectivity of nature Mm. And how the ego is a defense and a coping mechanism, which actually separates you from your feeling of oneness with the place. And that's a long process. Uh, and it's certainly not easily done without some very wise men helping you uh, teach you what to do. But that's it, isn't it, in a, in a sense? that You know, talking, uh, going back for a second to, to what you say about uh, Marty Scorsese, who you you know who you like, you 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 recommend for uh, for films and and uh, right, uh, I got for... a boxcar Bertha. Yeah, exactly. Not again. I mean, Barbara Hershey and David Carradine to be in it. I'm oh, sorry. Right. No, Marty was an authentic. You know, I wouldn't call him a master, but a genius uh, at film. I mean, he, for me, he's not Bellini or Kurosawa. But yet he made, when he was honest, like with Raging Bull or uh, Mean Streets, then he, you can't do much better than that, I don't think. 
And of course, on a technical level, he's a master craftsman. Sure. I mean, genius. But I mean, what I, I sense with someone like Matt Scorsese is he's putting his spirituality and he's putting his that that sort of thing he's putting it into cinema that's that's his sort of church that's his form of worship and prayer and and you seem to be someone who you're quite happy to go for cinema and work on film but but ultimately it that's only a facet of what you're interested in well look marty you know i knew marty pretty well i know spielberg pretty well when we were all young together and these right. guys lived movies they were movies there for their whole lives well, movies weren't just weren't really my main cultural thing but i read books and uh you know um and it was much more interested in european thought frankly than american and uh you know for me movies was like you know i know how to drive a cab i, I need to make money actually i don't but that's what <laughs> movies were for me <laughs> unless you could use them towards something like out of it i definitely wanted to break down these the, the illusion of reality of high school same for radicalization and the revolutionary, the illusions that these revolutionaries have, especially the radicals in the States, thinking they were revolutionaries when really they just wanted to avoid the army. They wouldn't want to kill people or even dealing, you know, people. Who, I mean, that was a joke, but still, it, for me, it was it was interesting to see, uh, the, you know, Harvard people have internalized the values of our society almost and we're going to become the establishment, the elite, run the show. Right. But what happens when one of them becomes a criminal? Because mm. they're all just servicing their own egos. They no longer have any ethical or moral consideration. And yet that's an advancement, believe it or not, in the evolution of the spirit. You know, to go from a level of believing in high school or believing the or having the ethics of a, a radical or having the ego primacy of a criminal who believes only in himself, those are all movements forward, believe believe it or not, in, in separating from the ego. I mean, Nunzio came after that, and that's really where you come to see that your ego, you know, for me, I realized the ego was my enemy. I was going to make a movie about that. But, you know, that's what they call when you're deluded that your brilliant ideas, that you don't have an ego. But really, your ego has just moved on to all your brilliant ideas. You're still full of shit, but you love your shit. Uh, <laughs> Then, you know, after that, you really become a misanthrope and uh, you get sick of yourself, you're sick of society, and that's where you you exit the, the desert. Mm. And uh, and that's when you either kill yourself or start serious work of the, uh, what were you saying, start uh, destroying what you thought was important. And it takes a while to come up with a new way of being. You don't do it in a second. You know, there's, mm. a, there's, a, there's a card in the tarot of the hanged man. The tarot is actually not a prognostication device. It's an it's a medieval system of psychological development. Um, and the hanged man is when you reach that point where you're hanging up, life is upside down because you've rejected the materialism of this world. And all the money falls out of your pockets because you're hanging upside down. Uh, but anyway, there are all these various steps. So anyway. When does that start happening with you then? When do you feel that you've you've got to that point where you just think I've got to sort of destroy myself or or start working on myself? Well, I would say there are two key elements. Three. One was certainly was with my father-in-law who owned Western Union and Western Union International. 
the Supreme Court of the United States, after an 11-year antitrust battle, ruled that he had to get, he owned the cables going to Europe and the satellites. He had a monopoly on all mm. information going to Europe. And the Supreme Court ruled, hey, it's a monopoly. You got to get rid of one of them. I still remember coming in one morning with the New York Times held over my head, you know, announcing the Supreme Court, making them their best. And I said to him, hey, they got you now, Bill. Yeah, you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, I loved him. He was a wonderful man, really. And he said, you come with me. And uh, he, we went into a side room. I, I write about this in the book. We go into a side room, and he picks up the phone and says, hey, Sid. Yeah. Did you see the New York Times this morning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, look. Uh, I, what do you say? You take the satellites, I'll take the steel mills. He said, oh, okay, okay. So look, you send your guys up on Tuesday. I'll send my guys down there and we'll, you know, we'll trade them. Right. Okay, fine, fine. And he hung up. I mean, it didn't take more than five minutes. This after 11 years of antitrust yeah. for the Supreme Court of the United States. And that radicalized me for life. Right. People have no idea. Even these radical left-wing writers have no idea how for the last 50 years, how it was so much worse than they ever imagined. So much worse. Now it's finally 50 years later, people say, hmm, there's an income disparity. <laughs> you know, where have you been for two generations? Yeah. Right? It's yeah. all been happening. Now it's just, this is called the mature state of capitalism. You know, that's it, isn't it? it? It seems like the one percenters, it, it feels like it's it's more naked and, and more... Yes, well, now, everybody. Oh, wait, 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 I do that in the revolutionary. You're not listened to in this society anymore, mainstream, unless you're rich. Mm. Rich mm. equals smart and control. Nobody questions the idea that rich is good, mm. or that rich is smart, or that rich should be aspired to. Mm -mm. So, but you know, if you read your, I study economics, you know, for mm. quite a while at Harvard before I, with John Galbraith. I tell some, that's really the other way I got into the movies. I went to an economics lunch with Galbraith, and I was so excited about his thought about Keynesian economics. And then he introduced me to his date, who was Angie Dickinson. These people just, just keep cropping up in your in your book with, with, with amazing uh, regularity. Julie Christie, you just bump into and say, oh, can you be in my movie? Well, no, you know, not quite. Well, right. Certainly, Angie Dickinson was totally coincidence. Right. I was so interested in Kane, John Maynard Kangs, who knew that I had never seen such a beautiful woman in my entire life, in real life. Right. I'm sorry. I just never saw anybody even close to that level of beauty. And I, I remember thinking, and I, I said, whatever field this woman is in, I am going to spend my life in that field. So <laughs> sex has a primacy. I mean, I, beauty is just an amazing thing when mm. you're a visually oriented person. It's just, oh, I couldn't believe how beautiful she was. Anyway, uh, what was the point of all of this? Uh, uh, we were talking about the the rich and the, the mature stage of capitalism. Although oh, all right, right, the, right. The so, rancid uh, yeah, yeah, stage yeah, of yeah. capitalism. Yeah. yeah, so wait, on the one hand, I get this John Galbraith and my Keynesian and the history of economic uh, thought, 
you know, you go through from Malthus to my Malthus today is the only one who's got it right. Mm. War, famine, pestilence, mm. natural disasters, pandemics. He had it all. Yeah. Anyway, that was the first economist. But then Adam Smith and Ricardo and, you know, going on anyway. But still, I was thrown off the rails by Angie Dickinson. The dichotomy. Uh, but but just to, apropos of Julie, no, right. I fell in love with Julie when I saw her and Billy Lyre walking down the street on the screen. I just couldn't believe it. And she, she became a fantasy figure for me. Mm. And when I was going to do Out of It, my first movie, and the, the character has a fantasy about getting together with Julie Christie. So what I and those were the days there was no internet, you know. Writing a telegram was an expensive business. Your father is dead or something like that. Right. I wrote her twenty page telegram telling her how she had to be in my movie. And it was if she was ever coming through Kennedy, I could just run to Kennedy and just get five seconds of her. It would be all I needed to put in the movie. And she wrote back. She said, Unfortunately, she's not coming through the US, blah, blah, blah. But she's working with Peter White, Peter Whitehead on uh, let's make London love in London tonight. Right. And they sent me some outtakes that I could use in my movie. Brilliant. Now, you know, so it wasn't just coincidence that I ran into her. I mean, many years later, I was married to, you know, this great heiress and just married. And there's a knock on the door. I open this Julie. What bad timing. Oh my God. <laughs> She was in New York to to promote uh, the Richard Lester film with George Scott, Petulia. Petulia, yes. Yeah, and she was there. And we got along great, you know. I mean, nothing. I mean, I really liked her when I met mm. her completely, but I was still a pretty, I was just married. I, I didn't have the, I was, I was still a bit of a Boy Scout. <laughs> with dreams like these who needs nightmares <laughs> uh -huh. um, uh, the also uh the other person that i i have to ask you about obviously is is terence malick because you uh produce badlands um and you help uh, and you put that together um how did that come about well it's a long story but in a nutshell terry was good friends with a guy named jake brackman from harvard as well right yeah he wrote the lyrics for a lot of Carly Simon songs. And he wrote Bob Rafelson's King of Marvin Gardens. But, but he hadn't done this at this point. Right. Right. I'm really leaving out a lot. But basically, Jake and I worked on a project together. And, you know, we knew each other quite well. And Terry, I guess, was Jake's best friend. I mean, you would know this better than I, even if you work on Terry material. Jake doesn't show up in the Terry material. Oh no, he does. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, oh. they 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 meet in Harvard and they and they work together on the New Yorker. And I think right. when when he's in New York, I think even the Carly Simon there's a Carly Simon connection as well with Terry that that I think they right. brief, briefly dated. Who you briefly dated? What Jake was really close with with Carly Simon, and. Uh, Carly Simon briefly dated Terry, but right. she she yeah. sort of says that she got the feeling that Terry and Jake should be dating. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I think is a great insight. I, I I made out with Carly one afternoon to Jake, so she's very smart. Uh, there's some good stories with Carly. Anyway, see, 
by that time, I had learned a little bit about uh, sometime later taking people's pain away with my hands. Mm. And so uh, Carly was about to go on at the Troubadour, and she had a migraine headache. And she started in the crowd, and she asked me to come back. So I went back there and laying on the hands, got rid of her migraine. She gets on stage. She has a great performance. And afterwards, John, uh, uh, what's his name? Taylor comes back. James, uh, James Taylor. And they meet and fuck in the bathroom. But anyway, that uh, going back to Carly, he was, I think she's quite right about Jake and Terry. Uh, but in any event, so Jake told me that Terry wanted to do this movie. Right. And then they got him together with me and Ed. I'm leaving out. I'm leaving out a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> I noticed. But we can talk about that later, anyway. As uh, maybe off, off the, off the microphone, we can talk about right, that. Right. Going back to the, the the politics, I guess one of the things that struck me in the in the book, and you sort of you mention it as 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 the book goes on, is is yeah, you you sort of seem to see things all the way through as they're changing and people from the 60s aren't necessarily following that same trajectory. And I'm thinking most obviously would be John Voight, who uh, (laughs) goes from being in the revolutionary and Midnight Cowboy to his sort of present um, manifestation. Uh, Still a wonderful actor, still still does some wonderful work, but um, frankly a bit well it didn't put it this way not 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 in my political camp right well uh, perhaps perhaps not in anybody's perhaps in a bit of a political camp on well, his there are 30 million americans who believe what he believes well first i just want to say i love john from the first moment i met him right he's just such an extraordinary talent i mean it was almost like a meeting it was more than meeting angie dickinson if you can believe that wow, uh, <laughs> wow. no he was he was, and, and you know, at the same meeting, who was there of Ali McGraw? And they were all at the same William Morris agent, a guy named Marty Davidson. And I was looking for people for the, out of it. And I met John and, well, this is the truth. Ed Pressman had signed Barry Gordon to do the lead because he wanted right. a name. And the main character was like me, not like some schlep, you know, what yeah. Molly Haskell called, uh, you know, well, anyway, the guy, you know, was a bit of a nerd and a dork, mm. dork, as you might say. And they became a movie about that. But it wasn't written that way. The character was much stronger. Mm. Uh, mm. And when I told Ed that I'd met, met the perfect guy to play me, uh, he said, sorry, well, you already spent $10,000. I said, this kid, I'm telling you, is a movie. It's just unbelievable. Right. And Ed right. wouldn't budge. So uh, I said to John, I said, look, I got a partner here and he won't go along with this. But I can tell you, you're the greatest thing I ever saw. Let's make this movie together. Take one of the smaller parts and I'll write a movie for you. So I knew from the first second that that John was an immense talent. And then, of course, I learned a lot about Sandy Meisner and the neighborhood playhouse. This little class with John Voight. And the other members of the class were Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Bob Duval, Chris Walken. I mean, unbelievable. How talentless. What a bunch of talentless. <laughs> but in one class, in one acting class. I know. So well, what you have to know is that Sandy Meisner was a bit of a genius. He doesn't get the acknowledgement uh, that he should. 
yeah. yeah. And, and unfortunately, he was he was an egotist too. He he became a bitter old man. Mm. You know, uh, instead of taking pride in the fact that he had taught the, all the greatest actors. Oh. I will. Did I say Pacino was there too? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's sad. I met Meisner a few times because he came to the set of the Revolutionary, right, to see Duval and Boyd. And uh, I was, I really thought the world of him, and it, it got diminished when I met him in person. All right, because he wasn't as uh... well, his ego was fucked up. So, but so what happened to Boyd? Do you think what was the? You know, I mean, I guess what happened to Boyd might be asking as well. What happened to thirty million Americans? Hey, Eldridge Cleaver ended up making pants before he died right right uh you know i can't tell you how many of the left-wing guys i'm I, i'm the last one <laughs> and i went and i went spiritual but is i mean is your spiritual path do you feel that that's a in any way a sort of renunciation of the political or do you think it's an extension of that well i think it grew out of it for sure right. because you see that well like in ukraine you got he goes on the American side, and he goes on the Russian side, and they both do propaganda against each other. The, the U.S. has, you never hear a word about how, you know, everybody who was smart in the U.S. said get rid of NATO after the, the Soviet Union collapsed. But we're a military-industrial warring economy. We need mm -hmm. wars. Uh, and so we get a dose of propaganda here, and you get a different dose in China, Russia, India, Brazil, where I am now. You just, you know, war comes from ego. As long as people have egos, there's going to be war. I mean, Marx called the war of all against all, right? Capitalism. Anyway, you know, and so from my, Einstein said, you know, the world is going to blow itself up unless we get a new way of thinking. And mm. I see no evidence at all of a new way of thinking. Although I did meet Herman Kahn, and we spent time together, and we talked about our acid trips. And really? on his acid trip, yeah, it's in the book. He said, you will get a change of consciousness in, on his acid trip. You will get a change of consciousness in the 21st century. But only until a million people a day are dying of hunger. Oh, if goodness. you see every year, every week, another 7 million people are dead, it will start changing the way people are thinking. And instead of building all this war machinery, we'll start building transportation for food. But that was his acid trip. I'm not saying it's reality, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but it gives you an insight uh, into the whole deal. Waking up the next oh, morning. Anyway, in answer to your question, the spiritual thing, I think, is simply uh, on some level quite objective when you see through the delusions of personality and power politics. It's, it's no, but what I find most interesting personally is I realized that Marx got it wrong. He thought the antithesis of capitalism would be socialism. But the antithesis of cap the antithesis of capitalism is uh, planetary suicide, extinction. Mm. Mm. In other words, the capitalist system creates the uh, gas chamber of planet Earth. You, we don't have to worry about a lot of these things because capitalism is is committing suicide by mm. making the planet uh, uninhabitable for civilizations by making everyone commit suicide essentially well you know so i i that i just had an idea about that a few days ago but yeah that there's a einstein and then i came across the einstein thing about he's saying that same thing a long time ago uh that you have unless you get a whole new way of thinking i mean in that sense greta thunberg is a more important thinker 
than anybody else on the planet at the moment. But uh, of course, nothing political will work because it's mm. all based on opposition and uh, everything creates its opposite. I mean, if we look at history, don't don't we see that political things have worked? I mean, we have had progress. Oh, yes. We have, oh, yeah, we yeah, have yeah, moved yeah. forward. So, so oh. why, why would that end? Why would we not be able to do that? Well, have you read this, Pic- uh, what's the name, Piketty? Yeah, Thomas Piketty, the French you, economist. You, and you, Have you read his stuff? Yeah, Capital, yeah, I've read his stuff. Oh, okay. So, yeah, things have gotten a lot better, mm. a lot better. Poverty, war, all these things are improving tremendously. The real culprit, though, is money. It's to make more. The, the model of growth capitalism is that you have to grow. Now, it's true. You could say, well, we could help with all this out if we didn't have eliminated the progressive income tax 60 years ago. But this vast inequality and this total dedication to the god of profit and money. I mean, people would rather have jets and palaces than help starving people in the neighborhood. So until you compat, you know, this is where the Buddhists come in, but Ali Lama says, you know, the starting point is compassion. Mm. And actually capitalism has pretty much killed compassion. Mm. So now it's becoming ultimately extremely materialistic, but that's not the important part. The important part is the industrial process that's creating the gas chamber of earth. You know, Hannah Arendt says, Hopefulness is what discourages uh, courageous action. Mm. All the Jews who thought, oh, yeah, we're just getting on the trains to be relocated to, you know, they were very hopeful that they were going, oh, yeah, everything's fine. They they all got gassed, right? Those who didn't accept the hope, who said, we're going to our death, were the ones who survived and took effective action against what was opposing them. Well, there is no courageous action. You know, right now, the whole green movement is a delusion. I mean, we are so far past the point of no return. And every, I mean, the Gates scholars at Cambridge, who must be among the brightest people on earth, right? Right. They go and they get the people from all over, pay their way, blah, blah, blah. And most of them, believe it or not, are studying how to fight climate change. That's what they're doing. And they're coming up with all kinds of brilliant ideas about how to make green more profitable than fossil fuels, and that, as if the game's still in play. And they, you see the ads from the... The oil companies and the politicians always oh, fighting climate change, but they're green, blah, blah, blah. Well, talk, there was a wonderful time I talked with the heads of the Gates program at mm. Cambridge who were teaching these brilliant little kids. And what do you think of all these kids? Apropos, you're saying, well, it's all going to work out history. And they said, well, we really appreciate these young minds. They're really, you know, the best we can do, but it's way too late. There's mm-hmm. no way you would have had to start 40 years ago with a with some massive programs. And right now mm-hmm. we're still not reducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Yeah. Even so they are saying, forget it. I'm not talking about, you know, radicals. Now. I'm talking about the, the Gates professors at Cambridge. So. Boy, did I say a mouthful here, huh? Yeah, wow. We've, we've, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've, uh, yeah, I don't even want to start because I do, I, uh, I, I've got such a pessimistic view of the of the future that if I begin, people will turn this podcast off and never listen to it again. And they'll go, they'll run into well, the you know, seat screaming. You know, I do that whole thing on Thomas Malthus in the book. Yeah, well, Malthus had the. It was absolutely right. Everyone has this cocky idea that Malthus, oh, he got it so wrong. What an idiot! But it was like, no, he didn't foresee fertilizer. 
He didn't foresee. <laughs> that was his one mistake. He didn't foresee a technological improvement that doesn't well, in he, any way abnegate the rest of his ideas. He was just a, a few hundred years ahead of his time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's funny. I Joel Cohen, who I... He was head of the Rockefeller Institute. Not to be mistaken with the, the film director, Joel Cohen. Yeah, yeah. No, this guy's a genius, on the world's leading genius on population. And he was on the Crimson with Jake and me and a lot of people. And he actually did the music for Sean the film about the French village. He played right. the piano in Adam's house. So. But I stayed a little bit in touch with him. Anyway, he, he said basically, populate. this was about eight years ago. He said, population is really not a problem. We, the, the world can support. The, first of all, the world population will even out at around 8 billion or 11 billion. Mm. And then it really won't grow anymore. And we have the capacity to feed that many people. Now- so uh, what, they, what they weren't figuring was that land would become non-arable. The air would become saturated. The oceans would be at 95% CO2 capacity and the methane contained in the tundra and the permafrost is equal to all the CO2 produced since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution will be released in 40 years. So, uh, I mean, I know this, and I think certain other people know this, but man, you don't see it on the TV. Well, Paul Schrader, <laughs> Paul Schrader put it in his uh, first Reformed film, which was... Uh... Yeah, no, I know Paul Schrader. I had a fun time with Schrader when we, uh, in that group in Hollywood. I used to know him pretty well. And he would come out every weekend to Margo. I was living with Margo Kidder, and Marty would come by, and Keitel, and all these things. Schrader would come by, too, on the weekends, but he never would show up on non-weekends. And I finally said, what are you doing? He's in his room in Santa Monica, and he's writing three scripts that are all going to be incredible. But he doesn't want to show anybody any script because he wants to direct. And he figures if he has can show him three scripts... And say, okay, you only get to make these if I direct the first one. That's how I'll get to be the director. We were all talking about how to become a director. I already was a director, but that was another. That was younger than all of them. Right. So it was weird. That uh, that was his plan. That was his master yeah. plan. And yeah. he put it into effect, and he did it. And I love Paul Schrader's movies, by the way, much more than a lot of more famous directors. I just think he's a. I think he's an excellent, excellent writer and director and a smart guy. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I was just looking for for a way of of, of sort of ending our conversation on a positive note. So, uh, well, I and the the positive note is that you can get to a place of serenity, right, and harmony. Right. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. You know, I they talk about luck. You know, one day I'm broke and I'm in town, and the guy calls me. Says this guy Tom Monahan who founded Domino's Pizza, billionaire, mm. is best friends with Pope John Paul II, and he wants to do a film about him. Why don't you come and meet Tom Monaghan? You can consult with him because he doesn't know anything about the film business. So I said, well, how much money is involved? In so maybe you get $25,000. I said, wow. I'm, you know. So that night, I read up everything I can about John Paul II on the internet and Tom Monaghan. I become an expert on Monaghan and the Pope. Next day, I meet him at four o'clock at the, his lawyer's office, and we start talking about a film on John Paul II. And I talk endlessly about John Paul's mysticism and, you know, matters of the spirit. You know? Right. 
And at the end of the two hours, he's, you know, he says, please come to dinner with me. Could you come to dinner with us? I said, I asked my lawyer, was there? He said, yeah, yeah, let me call my wife. We go to the Four Seasons. They've got wines that were decanted by his sommelier from Ann Arbor, ordered it hours and, you know, $2,500 a, a bottle, kind of stuff. And oh, um, I've never had such wine in my life, by the way. But uh, uh, where am I going? Uh, oh, yeah. So we uh, we go on talking some more, you know. And, uh-huh. And at one point he says, uh, I've taken a vow of poverty. You know, I only spend money on food and uh, travel and uh, with all the rest of the money I'm giving away, I'm going to die broke. And I said to him, really, me too. When are you going to die? And the lawyer looked at me. And I said, no, come on, Tom, tell him when you're going to die. Because, you know, if you're going to die broke, you got to figure out when you're going to die. Right. And he says, absolutely true. I said, do you have a reverse amortization schedule to give away the money? He said, yes. And I said, good. And we hit it off great, right? <laughs> and then when my lawyer goes to the limo to with Tom, leaves me behind to see if we can make our $25,000 deal, Tom says to my lawyer, you know, he's the only guy in Hollywood we met with in two days of all these meetings who never talked about the deal. He said, I want this guy to produce the movie. That's how I got the job. You know, $55 million movie. Anyway, what I'm really trying to say is, I guess, something about when I got to meet the Pope and all this kind of stuff. You know, there's something that Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, the Pope, Oscar Chazo, uh, for me, it's real. It's not, you know, hooby-jooby, blah, blah, blah. It's, there are real human beings on this planet who who are authentic mystics who right. have really learned something about serenity, peacefulness, and objectivity. Objectivity is very important to all these people. They aren't deluded by one set of propaganda or another. They're not ruled by the need for fame and fortune at this point. And they have studied how to get there. So, yeah, one if I want to leave somebody with an optimistic point of view, yes, uh, serenity and uh, uh, happiness and joy are all in the moment. They're not in the future. They're not in the past. It's right now. Right. Right now. And you will get very, very happy. Now, I have to say, since I'm so old and, you know, Ed Pressman just died last week, so mortality is on my mind, mm. uh, and which is quite all right with me. I'm, I'm happy with it. But uh, I did read it, you know, uh, Ratzinger, the, the Nazi Pope, yes. died a few weeks ago. Of course, I got to know Ratzinger and the Pope and all those people in 2000, 2004, when I was in the Vatican studying with these, you know, getting this all together. Uh, and I didn't like Ratzinger at all. Right. He's a real conservative asshole. But he wrote something that was really relevant to this very New York question, mm. which I've been thinking a little bit about these days about the moment of death no it's certainly that all buddhists talk about all of life being a preparation for death but he talked about what is the moment of death well if you can get to this point of serenity and peace and objectiveness that you can go into this place called the void which is one of the restful basic places you go can go it's like being in the, in the in outer space or something no thought just 
But at the moment of death, you go into, you, if you conceive of it as a notion of love, okay, that really what you're doing in that moment is if you're, you go into that moment, which is totally in the present and mm. totally surrounding and totally loving. Now, what happens, that's a very interesting construct. I have no idea if it's true or not, but uh, I like the idea of it. And I don't know if you've read, I wrote another book called The Image of a Spirit. No, I haven't read that, no. Well, anyway, when my mother died, I took a bunch of pictures of her for the hour and a half after she died with the Blackberry. Hmm. And uh, uh, the Blackberry captured images of a person of some sort. It's in the book, leaving hmm. her body. Yes. And I spent three or four years going to the, you know, the leading experts on the planet, right. showing him this stuff. So it's clear. And I gave a talk at Harvard about this, too, that yeah, at that the moment of death. That's in the book as well. And someone says, you have a lot of nerve giving you. Right. I say, I have no idea what happens after death. Oh, not what happened, but what it all means. But I am certain of the fact that something happens. And you may not be conscious of it, but you can take a picture of it with the right camera. Anyway, that'll... Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> so we're sending our listeners now into the ocean of love. Remember, if you're not happy now listening to this podcast, that's it. You have, you have got no chance. So uh, I'll just say thank you very much to Paul Williams for talking to us. And, um, and uh, yeah, thank you, Paul. It's been a great pleasure. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.